Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Before we get started on today's show, I wanted to let you know that affiliates of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke have published three new books that you'll want to check out. If you go to the Cook Center website, socialequity.duke.edu, under our research tab, you'll find links to a revised edition of From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, The Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, and A Dream Defaulted, The Student Loan Crisis Among Black Borrowers. These books are incredibly insightful and amplify our mission at the Cook Center to offer policy solutions to racial, social, and financial inequities. That website again is socialequity.duke.edu, and you'll find those books under the research tab. All right, let's get to the show. I think that's one of the reasons why maybe you were able to feel such warmth coming out of the text was because we really tried to reorient the reader to think about not coming from a place of lack, but from a place of abundance. And Black women have always had an abundance, even during a pandemic. Black women write a, because writing is important and we do it for the academy, but we write to save our souls. And therein lies the ethic of care. We wrote this through the pandemic to save our souls. You're listening to Voices in Equity, the official podcast of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. On our first podcast series, we're focusing on the pandemic divide, how COVID increased inequality in America. It's a collaborative book from faculty, many here at Duke, who are committed to shining a light on inequities and truly making a difference. On today's episode, we're talking about another book that sheds light on that inequality in America. Together, Drs. Julia Jordan-Zachary and Shamara Al-Hassan edited Black Women and Dorona, a collection of stories from many collaborators rooted in the ways Black women understand their lives, healing, mothering, and advocacy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Julia and Shamara are joining us today, along with Keisha Bentley-Edwards, who you might remember from episode three. Keisha wrote the foreword for this book, so she's the perfect person to host. So I'll be taking a step back and enjoying the conversation. Here's Keisha. You wrote about Black women are haunted, alluding to pandemics of the past and the historical context that challenges the ideas that we're all in this together. That was that common myth at the early part of the pandemic. We're all in this together. Mm-hmm. COVID doesn't see color. Could you give us some history or some context of how you think about pandemics from colonialism, enslavement to now, or any any blend answers a question you want to answer. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for that question. I think it goes back to something that Julia said about how she received the call, that the ancestors wanted to speak. And I think one of the reasons why was because it previously in other pandemics that, you know, the 1918 Spanish flu, as well as pandemics that we know happened during slavery, during colonialism, a lot of them, we don't necessarily have Black women's stories, right? We don't necessarily have Black women reflecting on how they were able to survive or even statistics about how many Black women disproportionately died in these different um, pandemics. 
What we do know, though, is that COVID-19 exposed that structurally, if you don't have housing in place, if you have yes. rampant medical racism, which um, the American uh, Medical Association came out with a whole, what, like 50 pages of text about how they want to revamp the medical system um, in the United yes. States. And, you know, I think countries, different countries during COVID-19 were forced to reckon with, we don't have the infrastructure. Yes. One, we don't have the infrastructure to take care of most of the population, but certainly those of us who are most vulnerable, the frontline workers, people who live in close quarters and can't uh, socially distance, schools that have too many students in the classroom, so they still cannot um, socially distance, people who don't have internet access. So when the schools shut down, you know, exactly. their, their learning loss is much greater than other people who have access to the internet and such things. So I think the, the COVID-19 pandemic is really instructive in sort of having a historical glance at what life must have been like for mm -hmm. Black women who lived through the Spanish flu or through any of the pandemics during enslavement and colonialism because of all of these structural issues. So that for me was one of the most eye-opening things about writing this book and about even thinking about some of the statistics around housing, around uh, mental illness that Julia actually had gathered together in, in the introduction and really uh, went in to think about each of the categories and the ways that Black women were disproportionately affected. And so I think this was our way of really trying to honor those ancestors that were not able to speak before and making sure that we did not just disappear in COVID-19, that we did have a voice, that we did survive, that some of us did also perish, but our stories are going to be memorialized in these texts. Yes, yes. Did you have anything else you wanted to add there? You know, in, in theory, I'm a political scientist. I don't always claim it, okay? But in theory, <laughs> I'm a political scientist. And once I went to a political science meeting, or a big meeting, annual meeting, and I believe I was the only person speaking about HIV and AIDS. Mm. And the only person talking about HIV and AIDS and Black women. And that struck me. Right. Because yes, we yes. know that black women continue to be disproportionately impacted by HIV and AIDS and not just outside of the U.S. I mean, one only has to look at some parts in New York, Baltimore, for North example, Carolina, North Carolina. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes. So in my second book, In Shadow Buddies, I write about black women and HIV and AIDS because mm -hmm. to me. It was one of those, and I call it a pandemic, even though we think about pandemics as impacting everybody in the world. But my argument is that because Black women are disproportionately impacted, and the impact is not only relegated to the Black community, because what, what happens is that you are losing people from society. Exactly. Right? Children are losing their parents. That has to constitute some sort of pandemic because it touches all of us directly and Absolutely. indirectly, right? You know, I was reflecting on that experience of being at APSA and being the only person to talk about HIV and AIDS and Black mm -hmm. women's experiences with HIV and AIDS. And it really, you know, it, it kind of dawned on me and, and people say, oh, you're always so passionate about Black women. You know, you're biased. I'm like, I'm not biased. I'm just telling you that there's something grossly wrong in society. 
where you have a group of women that can be disappeared. Exactly. You have a population that can be disappeared. It shows up in HIV. It it shows up. Look, we, we just had the case that came out a few weeks ago where the community was saying Black women are disappearing. I believe it's in Ohio. And mm-hmm. the police were mm-hmm. like, eh, they're probably somewhere. And in fact, they were. And it was dozens of women. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. wasn't until someone escaped. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so this is something that I'm so glad you're talking about Black women disappearing from the statistics, from the news stories, mm-hmm. from how we engage when we talk about HIV, when we talk about heart disease, even up until recently when we talked about pregnancy, even. Mm-hmm though Black women were disproportionately affected, we were not there, which is what makes this book even more important because you still see how Black women are not being talked about even as we're expected to come up and fight for everyone Mm -hmm. but ourselves. Right, right. That whole notion of listen to Black women. But I keep saying, but are y'all hearing Black women? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> yes. And do y'all want to hear Black women? Because that's the other thing, right? Do you genuinely want to hear Black women? So I always tell people, you know, this is not a bias. This is not to suggest that other people aren't suffering. Other people are suffering and we and we we recognize that and we honor that, right? But what yes. we're trying to do and what we try to do in this book is we're saying, here's a very specific population. And it's not just in the U.S. Because what I try to do mm-hmm. is I try to gather statistics across the African diaspora, right? Which is yes. really hard to do. You would think in 2022, we would have better data collection. <laughs> no, <Nope. laughs> All this chit-chat about intersectionality to data collection is horrible. You know, yes. the social scientists, I'm like, oh, my heart. <laughs> And there are assumptions that are made, right? Even in places like Brazil, where we know that there are these racial stratifications and hierarchies, you still Mm -hmm. see it, but you manage to get those stories included, which is fantastic. Yeah, we tried. We tried. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so let's talk back to the idea of care, community, and consciousness. What do these themes mean to you? And I think that's a perfect segue after we talk about how people have, Black women have been disappeared or attempted, there's have been attempts to disappear us. Going into this care, community, and consciousness, what does it mean in this broader concept of the book? Care, community, and consciousness were all really core pillars of the text. And one of the things that I really loved about the method that Julia employed in creating this book was this ethics of care. We had an ethic of care, the the authors also had an ethic of care that basically spoke to how we were going to be together in in this space, how we were going to be forming this space. And one of the things that I think was really grounding about that was that people were not writing in isolation. And um, Julie Mm -hmm. can talk more about how she paired people together to write together. Um, But people were not writing in isolation. And that's why you have such a cohesiveness in the text where you have people who are literally speaking to each other and drawing from each other as they're going through the process. Because as we know, COVID was such a life-altering state and very, very isolating. And I think one of the really great things that came out of like 
practicing this type of communal writing was pulling us out of this quarantine mentality or this isolation mentality to say that we are actually together as Black Mm -hmm. women going through these experiences and we can hold each other up and lean on each other in these ways. And that was the same type of relationship that I think Julie and I were also able to develop as editors who were able to, you know, constantly just be in communication. Like, I don't know if I would have gotten through the pandemic with anyone else. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, but but that's a key point, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, and to be clear, I mean, we're we're talking about this now, so we know the pandemic is still going on, but because this is recorded and people may listen to this years from now, I want it to be clear that the writing was occurring during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So this is not a retrospective. This no. is people writing in real time and having to care for each other. It's very, trans- your style of even writing it and building this volume is a transformative experience. I don't know if the writers will write in the old islands of excellence isolation way again, after you get this feeling of of care, this ethics of care, it really changes your perspective. Mm. So I was reflecting on that. Go ahead, Julia. (laughs) (laughs) What I'll say is that I'm still in communication with quite a few of the authors and quite a few of them are still writing together. Mm. And one of the authors reached out to me and said, and this is very recent and I'm paraphrasing. She said, I found my voice. Mm. She said, you allowed me to explore and to find where I wanted to be in the academy. She says, you never told me something was impossible. Mm. And one of the questions, so there's a lot of care and attentiveness in this text, right? And I talked yes. about a little bit about that in another podcast. So this involved, for example, having Zoom meetings with the authors yes. and asking questions such as, what is your legacy? Not what do you want to write about, mm-hmm. but what is the legacy you want to leave, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that totally reshaped writing. It totally reshaped for some of them shaped their relationship with the academy you know some of the writers mm-hmm. you, you know would reach back out and say i took a risk and left this job because i realized it wasn't allowing me to flourish and i you know in writing with you i realized it could be a different model mm-hmm. yes there are moments where you you look back at a project and you think the project is one thing when you're in the midst of it mm-hmm. and then you have a little bit of perspective a little distance between the project and you realize that you were wrong about what the project is about, mm. right? I was wrong mm-hmm. about what this project was about. When you started, what did you think this project was going to be about compared to right. how it ended up being? All right. So in Lavender Fields, I have a 10-year-old who wrote a piece. Mm-hmm. And Lavender Fields consists of Black women, various ages, doing various things. They're not all academic, et cetera. While, you know, Black Women Arona is more academic contributors. They are all kind of autoethnographic and to some extent, right? Which which mm-hmm. was something that I didn't expect to privilege, right? The, the, the yeah. kind of methodology of the text. Mm-hmm. But what I didn't imagine was that it was an opportunity to encourage individuals to live deeper in their truth. Now, that's the part I didn't 
anticipate. Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, but to watch people grow through the process of writing, and, and Shamar, I know you can probably speak to this, but just to watch how people grew as writers. And then I'm reminded, you know, and, and I journal a little bit about this, how Black women write, A, because writing is important and we do it for the academy, but we write to save our souls. And there yes. lies the ethic of care. We wrote this through the pandemic to save our soul. Exactly. Mm. Because who else is going to save us? Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and I think it's going to come through for the readers as well that you're going along with this journey. And even thinking about, you know, I've written a lot of chap book chapters and how Usually I don't know what else has been written in the book until the book comes out. Mm -hmm. And so it's so unusual and it's a great, it's great because then you can be in conversation with each other as you're writing, but also I'm sure for those who wrote the chapters in the book that they could also see their own growth and it comes through in how they write, like the start to the finish. And so how, how did you decide the topics? Because there, there's no shortage uh, of topics when it comes to how Black women are continuing to be affected by COVID-19 or the Rona. Uh, how, did, how did you make those decisions? That was not easy by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I, I, I freely admit that I did something that was not environmentally sound. I printed all of the proposals. <laughs> Yes. And it literally was like a jigsaw puzzle. So I would color coordinate. So I had different color sticky notes. Well, this goes with this. And we knew that we wanted a diasporic view. Mm -hmm. Right. We didn't just want this to be a US based black woman's text. And and I was really intentional about writing the story of my mother and her little friend in the introduction. You know, her little friend mm -hmm. that cried because she couldn't hug her, you know. Yeah. Because I wanted to tell, as best as we could, a story that was wide without losing the depth of it, if that makes sense. Yes. And I wanted to be able to capture the various ways that we found ourselves having to deal and coexist with COVID. Right? So like Shamar is writing about breathing literal and figurative breathing, mm. right? figuratively <laughs> breathing, right, was part of our struggle. But the other part of the struggle was how do we care for those little girls that residing us, like the little girl who resided, my, my mother's neighbor, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. we went to the kitchen table, we went back in time and pulled it forward, which is something I so love about Black women how they bend time, mm -hmm. right? So in the book, there's this reaching back in the past and pulling forward things, but there's also this forward motion. Absolutely. Right? So Black women are living in the future right here, right now, while they're living in the past. I'm like, oh, man, only a Black woman can do that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. You know, yes. Um, and so... You know, I, I literally saw this as a puzzle, putting together a puzzle 
of fitting things together in a way that will try to tell a nuanced story. Okay, because I didn't want this. I wanted people to see the complexity of Black womanhood. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about health. You're talking about sex lives. Like sex became complicated. Uh, It's particularly if you weren't in a partner relationship. Shamar, you look like you want to say something. I want to let you roll. (laughs) Oh, well, you know, I think one of the things that I really want to emphasize that the intentionality uh, with which Mm -hmm. the book was curated was one of the things that Julia would always say is that, you know, yes, like the world is falling, like we're feeling like this sort of sense of angst and a lot of negative energy that's going on with just everything that was happening, um, particularly in 2020, 2021. But how can we lean into the care work that we are practicing? How can we privilege that over, you know, the impending demise? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. It could have been a really different book. If, you know, everybody was just writing from that place of like, oh, my God, like the world is falling down. Um, But instead you get, you know, these so innovative chapters on letter writing and through the pandemic dancing, you know, sex mentioned, breathing, Um, you get mother schooling. There's all of these different technology, all of it. Yeah. And and one of one of the contributors (laughs) even says, um, you know, there was this, I guess, a New York Times article that come out sometime in 2020 where this uh, woman had written that, oh, well, she was just going to give up (laughs) because, Mm. you know, she just couldn't do anything else. And you know, the Black woman who wrote this particular chapter was co-authored by, I think, five different women. We're like, mm-hmm. well, we have never had a choice but to innovate, you know, but mm-hmm. to be creative. Yes. And so that's where I think, you know, drawing on that those legacies, those ancestral legacies, um, as well as connecting to the present in terms of the innovations that Black women were able to form it was so important. I think, and I think that's one of the reasons why maybe you were able to feel such warmth coming out of the text was because we really tried to reorient the reader to think about not coming from a place of lack, but from a place of abundance. And Black women have always had an abundance, even during a pandemic. Yes. And I love that word abundance. That I, At the start of this uh, calendar year in 2022, I kept saying that this is going to be a year of abundance. This is, that's how I look at it. This is a year of abundance. So I love that that's the phrasing that you use as you think about this book, um, that we can also enter next year into abundance as well. So now that we are wrapping up the second year of this pandemic, if you were to think about writing this book this year about Black women and the Ronan Knight, because like I said, you were writing this book in the moment in real time. Is there anything in hindsight like, oh, maybe we should have talked about this more or maybe we should have, you know, come from this angle or thought about this? Was there anything that I guess was either left on the cutting room floor, so to speak, or that was unexpected that maybe should have been talked about or could have been, could not should have, but could have been talked about? I mean, I think whenever you reflect on a project, there are always 
things that, you know, could have been said. But one of the things that I'm really proud of is that I think what was in this book was supposed to be said at that particular time. And I think it really comes from, you know, this sort of ancestral uh, wisdom that Julia keeps drawing from. Um, But one of the things that, you know, I think about in hindsight was I was actually pregnant and I had a baby in um, 2020 during the pandemic. And one of the things that I think, you know, in future texts, what I would love to sort of read more about is different Black women's experiences birthing during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. I think because, you know, at some point in time, nobody was allowed in the maternity ward with you. Literally, like so, in some states, you had to be birthing by yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And we know, of course, as you mentioned at the top of the uh, podcast, that um, Black women's mortality rate in delivery is like astronomical, is like out of this world, right? Absolutely. Um, so I'm just wondering about, you know, what the impact of that was or is and continues to be and how that reverberates. As Julia mentioned, you have a whole slew, a whole generation of children that are growing up without their parents. Yes. Their mothers because they were lost to COVID, their fathers were lost to COVID, or because of these other types of losses during delivery, right? Um, so that's something that, you know, I, I think in the future I would love to hear more about. And then one of the things that I was trying to write about in the chapter that I wrote um, was about long COVID. Um, mm-hmm. I think people are talking about long COVID now because we know more about it <laughs> at the yes, time when yes. I was writing. It was hard to find a lot of information around long COVID and specifically how long COVID was impacting Black women. There was only sort of like a handful of news articles around that time. But now there's more information about these sort of long-term illnesses, symptoms, the fatigue. You know, people talk about sort of long-term COVID fatigue. Yes. And so I think, you know, that's another area where I would love there to be more emphasis on the ways that Black women are dealing with long COVID and what their sort of recovery time is and how we can further support Black women who are continuing to suffer. Because as you said, the pandemic is not over, unfortunately. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I remember when I first talked to an editor, a publisher about this book. The response was, well, how could you be writing a book in the middle of COVID? What are they going to write about? You know, like their experiences? Well, because a lot of people thought that COVID was going to be like Y2K, right? Mm-hmm. That it was going to be something that happened and it was one, you know, small like blip in time. And we would all laugh about how crazy things were for a month or so or how concerned we were. And it was really nothing. But clearly, that's not the case. That's not the case. That's not the case. When you asked that question, I had to think. Um, the book, like Shamar said, the book is what it needed to be. It's not yes. a complete story, right? Because that volume will be too big. Mm-hmm. The fact that one press decided to publish two volumes is, is <laughs> I'm like, okay, somebody trusted, you know? What I would love to see, um, because I'm realizing that this is more and more of an issue, and we knew this during COVID, but I didn't have any chapters, uh, any proposals on this issue, is the kind of COVID and intimacy, Mm. right? So what does COVID mean for partnering? And unfortunately, I know of one too many cases 
where marriages fell apart during COVID. You know what I mean? What does that mean for the notion of the Black family? Mm -hmm. And I don't want this to seem patriarchal, like um, you're talking about, you know, man-woman kind of intimacy. No, I'm talking about intimacy across the board. What was partnering like for, for Black women during COVID? And I'm really curious about partnering for high-achieving Black women, mm-hmm. right? So when you are that one in the community that people see as high-achieving, and maybe COVID might have fractured a little bit of that high-achieving partnering, mm-hmm. how do you reconcile that? Right? Exactly. Because in community, I know that, you know, listening to some of the people I know, there there's a lot of guilt, right? Yeah. Why couldn't I not have done this or done it differently? Okay. I wish also there was a bit more, I think we hint at it, but it's not great detail about mental health. Yes. You know, I I think you're right. That's something folks are realizing now, how much Mm -hmm. more mental health needed to be discussed. Mm -hmm. Because mental health is not just, some things can be handled with Zoom, but as humans, we need physical touch Mm -hmm. um, and hugs, Mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, we had even, there were times when you could be in the same house with someone and you can't touch them because of fear of disease or exposure. Mm -hmm. If you work with someone who has a uh, what an essential worker and and when I and oftentimes in the black community the essential workers are also the disposable workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. you know the thing the risk you can't take uh, mm-hmm. and and oftentimes that sacrifice was touch and mental health. So getting back yes. to mental health and intimacy about how COVID can affect that building the community that you can build. Mm-hmm. comes into place. Right, right. I know of instances where partners have to sleep in separate rooms. Yes. And, and I also think about, I, I always make fun, I'm a grandmother's baby. And my grandmother's mm-hmm. 94 mm-hmm. and frail. I couldn't see my grandmother for fear yes. that I was going to bring COVID home. Exactly. You know what I mean? And so, you know, yeah, I'm talking about intimate relationships, like, you know, partners, but I'm also talking about those intimate relationships with family members, right? And what that Mm -hmm. and the toll that that took, because I remember, you know, I would sit and cry because I couldn't see my grandmother. Yes. You know what I mean? It it was, you know, or, or I even think about how, like, my daughter coped with it. That poor dog must have went on so many walks. <laughs> <laughs> the dog's like, not again, please. I know. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm like, that poor dog. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. But maybe those kind of stories of where where it gets, where it just becomes a little bit more intimate, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's where, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I love the text as is because oh, yeah, people took risk, you know what I Absolutely. mean? There's a lot of risk taking. There's a lot of bearing oneself 
um, mm-hmm. in these texts, particularly in lavender fields, where we really get into the nitty gritty of people's fears and stuff like that, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there needs, and I'm not doing this. Um, that the ancestors can come calling from now till. <laughs> I was going to say, look, don't, look, don't go out in the garden. <laughs> no, it's a call. I'm going to leave this for young folk. But there needs to be a text on, on intimacy during COVID. Yes. Yes. And Black intimacy during COVID. Yeah. And I think, you know, well, one point I want to make about that, and then, Julia, I want to also go back to when we were shopping the book. And just mm-hmm. how hard it was to actually find publishers that were interested in publishing books on Black women. Yes. <laughs> and if you can make- as, a, as a niche audience. Right. Right. Because we're mm-hmm. always assumed to be this niche audience that doesn't have anything to contribute to generalizable knowledge. But, you know, thinking about... <laughs> <laughs> Hey, you know, look, um, I, I know it's the I know it's it's the world we live in, but it's every time I, I, I hear it, I still shake my head like really, really, y'all. But I know it's true. I know it's true. It was so difficult. It was so difficult to find, you know, a home and for these books and to, you know, for publishers who really got it. Right. And and, and, mm-hmm. and saw the importance in making sure that black women's voices were elevated. And I remember at some point I, I was a little bit frustrated, you know, because I was like, Julia, like, is this the normal, like, you know, process? Like when you're shopping a book and she was like, you would be surprised, actually, <laughs> you know, how many publishers you have to kind of go through and that don't really value, unfortunately, um, black women's contributions. And so I think it's, it, we would be remiss to sort of not talk about that side of the process, the back end of things. Um, so I don't know if Julia want to say a word about that. I'll start out by saying that, and this is, you know, Arizona Press is not paying me, but Arizona Press has, has always mm-hmm. been for me lovely to work with, particularly the Feminist Wire, because they actually have a particular kind of consciousness and, and, and a cure. So this is not my first book with Arizona Press and the Feminist Wire. And yeah, Shamard was starting to get a little nervous and I was like, eh, we'll be okay. <laughs> because <laughs> It'll find been, a home. <laughs> yeah, because I'd been down this this road before. You know what I mean? Um, yes. And, and, and Shamar, I think I told you the story of like my first book where, you know, the, the, the publisher was like, oh, nobody's going to buy. And, you know, people ask me, is there enough to write an entire book around black women? I'm like, oh, wait, 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 <laughs> yes. wait, wait, wait. I mean, we're, we're, wait, what? I didn't even bother to answer that question. <laughs> good, good. You, you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to. I was like, give me my book, right? <laughs> Because clearly you don't have a particular kind of understanding of black womanness. And so I remember like with my first book, they said, oh, I have one cell. And, you know, it was published in 2008. And, you know, I can still get a check to go buy a large fry. I, I'm not going to be wealthy, but, you know. <laughs> look, for, for, an, for an academic book, right. like, you can, look. The fact that you're still getting checks for number one, and they're not for seven cents, because I have seen those seven cent checks. <laughs> like, why, right? Yeah, it's like, it costs you more to mail this check. To mail a check. 
you know, so I think I think it was a lot more calmer in comparison to Shamar. And and the other thing was I didn't want to separate the two books. Yes. Yeah. Right. And I didn't want to combine them. So there mm-hmm. were presses that said, oh, combine it, make one volume, drop people. I was like, uh-uh, 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 mm-hmm. uh-uh, uh-uh. These books both have a tale to tell. And it's a very valid tale to tell. Right? And so it was, it's a process. And, and, and I think it's always a process to get people to, to recognize the value of telling a Black woman's story. Mm-hmm. That there's value in that. You know, the question is, well, who's going to buy it? I'm like, just trust me. Exactly. You do good work, it's going to find a home. Yes. But I always say, you know, and this was something my mentor told me really early in my career, and it came through again in this book, is to build your work on a foundation of truth. Mm-hmm. It's not going to make it easy, and you know, because you still have to go through all these hoops because they're gatekeepers and, you know, boards and stuff like that. I'll tell you a little story. And Shamar, I don't know if I told you this, and this is why I wasn't necessarily worried about this. So for my second book, Shadow Bodies, I'm not going to name the press, don't worry. Um, (laughs) I got, and I still kept these reader reports, right? I mean, I got Mm -hmm. back what perfect reader report. Perfect. Never in my life. And I will probably never get that again, right? The editor, the the publisher, the editor of the press was like, yes, we're going to do this. Let's do this. The board said no. Oof. Mm -hmm. The board said it's not coherent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when when we see Black women persevering and writing about Black women, trust. Yes. Trust. Absolutely. There's a story that can be written behind. <laughs> well, the process, <laughs> the process is a story in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. It really is. It's a guidebook, mm-hmm. you know, to, to mm-hmm. other folks to, to know to keep pushing forward. Right. We're, we're going to be wrapping up soon. But I have this is a question that's, you know, that I have for you. I think I may have asked this the first time I met you a few years ago. How do you get the covers? I mean, I know this is a podcast, but Julia consistently has the most beautiful covers. Mm-hmm. Academic presses are known for having horrific, plain, um, stock image uh, photos that they use. But you always have these beautiful, meaningful artwork, photography. How, how did you, what, if you could describe the cover? Uh, for our listening audience, because I, yeah, when I saw it, I, I, I started clapping while I was looking at it. <laughs> like, yes. Shamar, you might be better suited. I am, I am horrible at describing <laughs> images. You want well, yeah, I mean, the cover, as you said, is amazing. And it's by this artist. I'm, I'm not remembering her name, but it's called Generations. It's golden. Then featuring these sort of black uh, woman figures, and it's kind of like um, kind of like the Russian dolls effect, where you have like you know the bigger the stack dolls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the stack dolls, where you have like the bigger uh, black woman, and then you have these sort of little smaller images of black women, like sort of in encapsulated by her. So 
you're right that Julia does consistently have the most beautiful colors in her book. And I think it's uh, one of the reasons is because she gives such beautiful descriptions to the publisher. So I remember when we were thinking about how, you know, what can be the image of the book? And I was like, well, I've never chosen an image for a book before, so I don't even know like where to to start. Um, And Julia was like, okay, you know, I'm thinking about a quilt and I'm thinking about ancestors and I'm thinking about, (laughs) and somehow, you know, Arizona Press, you know, went out and like found this artist that beautifully encaptured all of the things that Julia was thinking about. <laughs> I was like, I that. But yeah, um, it ended up being sort of the perfect representation of what we wanted to communicate with the book, which is why I'm so I'm so gratified that you used the word warmth when you mm. first uh, were talking about how the book made you feel. And I think that is the that is what we want to communicate with the cover from cover to cover, um, from when you actually first see the book to as you're reading and, and going through the book, it was supposed to move people to feel that level of warmth, that level of care, that connectivity with the ancestors, that connectivity with the innovative contemporary legacies that uh, Black women are continuing to shape. And I, th- I think that the cover really just, it spoke to all of that for us. Absolutely. And look, warmth and an academic book, an academic press book, is those don't usually go together. So <laughs> they don't go together. <laughs> you cannot underestimate how important it is to have a book that is warm, authentic, and still scholarly. Yeah. Like that's, Aww, thank you. those those don't always come together. So it's an amazing mm-hmm. accomplishment. Thank you. So the artist is Gemma Morris. Yes. Um and we had two options for covers Ugh, and it was hard. It was a hard one. <laughs> but like Shamar said, you know, we can't be shy about defining ourselves. Mm-hmm. Right. And having the images truly represent who we are. And I remember there was a particular cover that I had and I and I resisted the the press because it was a very what I perceived to be a very violent cover. And I said, oh, no. Mm. No, 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 no. We're not doing this. We are not doing this. And so I have learned to be very, very intentional about how I want to represent Black women mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the legacy of that representation, right? Because I know we talked a little bit about legacy because these books are going to stay around for longer than I'm going to be on this earth. Yes. And I want each part of the book to tell a story. Right. Each part should tell its story of the complexity, the vibrancy, the beauty, the spirituality, the comfort, the love held by Black women and between Black women. And so that's how I choose covers. Well. And I get lucky. <laughs> you know what the well, I, <laughs> listen, you can call it luck, but I, I think it's a skill. You can probably, you know, do a workshop just on how to pick your cover and how to demand a good cover. When you know you've gone through all this effort to write a book, and then the publisher will give you this stock image. I'm like, wait, you know how long <laughs> what I sacrificed, <laughs> and that's what I have to have as a cover. So I appreciate you know you being very you know, directive about what, how you will allow your work to be represented. Mm -hmm. So when will the book be released and how can people buy it? 
the book is available for pre-order and the University of Arizona Press. You're able to pre-order there. And what I like, again, Arizona Press is not paying me, but what I like is that they're publishing it in um, paperback and it's accessible. So the price for an academic book truly is accessible. Um, Because there are times when I've written stuff and I'm embarrassed to tell people I wrote it because I know they can't afford it. Yes. But this is is accessible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Which means that it could be in your local bookstore. Where yeah. sometimes when mm-hmm. academic books are so expensive, when you have a ninety dollar, you know, book, mm-hmm. you know, it can be difficult, you know, for even your local bookseller to purchase it. But this book, you know, a local bookseller can actually have it and sell it multiple copies of it. Um, besides, mm-hmm. for of course, all the national booksellers, Black Women and Dorona, Community Consciousness and Ethics of Care, Shamara Julia. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this book. But I want to thank you, especially for sharing your process, your stories about writing the book yourselves and and bringing the authors together. So thank you so much. Thank Thank you, Keisha. And thank you for joining us on this journey. We appreciate you. Thank you so much, Drs. Julia Jordan-Zachary, Shamara Al-Hassan, and Keisha Bentley-Edwards for joining us on Voices in Equity from the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. We will put all the links to Black Women and Dorona in the show notes. Take a look, and we'll see you again soon on Voices in Equity. The Cook Center is named after Samuel Du Bois Cook the first tenured Black professor at Duke University who exemplified the pursuit of social justice and equality. With research focuses including social mobility, education, health, wealth, and policy, the Cook Center aims to develop a deep understanding of the causes and consequences of inequality and develop remedies for these disparities and their adverse effects. To order the book Pandemic Divide, How COVID Increased Inequality in America, head on over to socialequity.duke.edu. That's socialequity.duke.edu. The podcast music for Voices in Equity is written and produced by Karan Kareem. This podcast is edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Maddie Braxick, and we'll see you again soon on Voices in Equity.